every time we let our hearts guard down, we risk the high price of a polluted life. The first thing that happens when we let our guard down, we align our lifestyle with our culture rather than God's truth. What does letting our guard down look like? I mean, when we say this, what are we talking about? What do we mean when we say, he let his guard down? Guard your heart, or you'll lose your mind. As we continue to sing to a God who we believe deserves to sit on the throne of our lives. We know how hard it is to uh, not slip into that throne ourselves. This morning as we continue in our series called Deal or No Deal, we survey the unfortunate events of someone who could have very well been us, who paid the very high price for what it meant to not stand guard over his heart. God, as we lift you up this morning, we just want to tell you that we want you to be our God. We want to celebrate you as the God all the time. We believe everything about you that you've ever said about yourself. And we pray, Lord, that that would be clear by our actions. But God, our praises for you are not just something to do on Sunday morning. Because we believe that you are alive. You conquered death. You're better than us. And we want you to be known as our Lord. For those of us who have not walked the path that we wanted to this week, we're not going to wait till it gets worse. We're walking back towards you, running into your arms. Lord, allow us to be close to you this morning. Be close to us. In your name we pray. Amen? Amen. You may be seated. Singing that song, I just... You know, I'm not a monster hugger, okay? But... There is one hug I'm looking forward to. There's a moment... In, no, get lost, buddy. There, there is a moment in eternity when this life's done. Can't wait to be in the arms of Jesus. It's going to be a great moment. It's going to be a, it's going to be a moment beyond compare. My name is Dennis. It's good to see you this morning. I serve as the lead pastor here at, I almost said, Rock Run. Whoa! That was... Last in the past. The medication's working. All right. So anyway, uh, yeah, Southfield, that's this place, right? And um, I'm glad that you're here today. We get to celebrate the moms in our lives. And as we do, I want you to go ahead and take the, the card that was inside of your folder today. Take that out. Put your name on it. If it's your first time with us, put as much information on that, that card as you're comfortable. And as you're leaving today, you'll notice a table on the way out the door. We have a gift for you there, a book that we'd like you to take as, as our way of saying uh, thanks for spending your morning with us. Well, it is Mother's Day and uh, some of you are having that moment, which you remember that. And that's why after the service, we sell some gifts for a mere five hundred dollars. Uh, no kidding. But anyway, hopefully you did remember and hopefully you're honoring uh, this woman in your life that either is your mom or serves as a mom, a person you look up to and admire. And we just we want to kind of introduce this uh, part of our morning with a with a, a visual reminder of the moms that are in our lives and the role they play for us. I'm grateful, God, for the way that both women and men and the way that they're designed are a clear reflection of your entire image. And that for 
a reason that only you will understand, but one that we love. You didn't put all of those aspects in in one sex, but you give us male and female in order to exhibit the fullness of your character and your being. And then you gave us this privilege of, of filling the earth with children. Moms and dads, they get that privilege. And, and God, I, I thank you so much for the fact that there is a, that there's a person in our life that at the very least gave us life. God, we're grateful for that, that we have that experience of being born to someone. Um, the circumstances weren't always great, God. For some of us, the circumstances, we look and we say, wow, I'm just glad I'm here. And God, today we acknowledge that Mother's Day is a day that there, there's some celebrating going on in this room. There, there are some women that are holding a, a baby that was born this past year. And they waited a long time for that little life uh, to be held in their arms. Uh, there are women who today have had the privilege of watching their children grow, and they're fully grown, and they love the decisions their children are making, and it just brings them great joy to see that come to fruition. And God, a day like today also reminds us of a lot of heartbreak. It, it reminds us of the fact that there are women in this room who uh, this year are raising their kid alone because there's a man that said, I'm done, I'm out. And it breaks our hearts. And now they have that role of both mom and dad that they get to carry. And there are moms in this room who uh, don't get to hold their baby anymore because their baby's not here. And that hurts too. And God, we, we acknowledge the, the, the full... Um, the full range of emotion that goes with this day. Because honestly, for some, this is a disappointing day. It's one they wish they could erase from the calendar. And so I pray that we will be able to look beyond um, these circumstances to you and to your character and to who you are and for the perfection that you intended. And that God, at the same time, no matter what the history, uh, if it was a bad history, we wouldn't repeat it. And if it was a great history, that we would learn the lessons from that and do the best we can with our kids to raise them up in a way that brings you great pleasure. Thank you, God, for always being there for us. Even when people fail, even when they drop the ball, thank you that you're always there for us. And that one day we will have that moment, that privilege, if we are followers of Jesus of falling into his arms, being embraced by him. We, can't, we just can't wait for that day. We look forward to it with great anticipation. We pray all this in your name, Jesus. And as we do, we also pray that you'll help us to understand what your word has to say today and what you're saying to us. And that we would not choose to just look at it, but we would choose to live it. Amen. When I was 15 years old, there were two names that dominated the local news in western New York. One was the name of a woman, uh, Lois Gibbs, and the other was a, a neighborhood in Niagara Falls, about seven miles away from my house, called Love Canal. Love Canal was actually the brainchild of a man named uh, William T. Love. He wanted to build a canal that would connect Niagara Falls 
to Lake Ontario. And then he had this dream of a model city. This is the 1890s. And he was going to use hydroelectric power in order to power his city. And after a lot of wrangling with city fathers and whatever, he, he morphed his idea instead. He wanted to just create a shipping lane between, between the Niagara River and Lake Ontario so that they could bypass the falls and create a path for commerce. After numerous stops, stops and starts, the project was abandoned, leaving only a one-mile canal about 50 feet wide, 10 to 40 feet deep, stretching northward from the Niagara River. And if, if you look at this image, you see the Niagara River at the bottom. And right in the middle, right in the middle, there's a strip of bare land. Uh, that's the stretch of the canal. Well, with the project abandoned, the canal eventually filled with water. Local children would swim in there. They'd skate there in the winter, you know, Buffalo winter from, from October to about June. And uh, they had a great time. And then, for some reason, the city of Niagara Falls decided to start using this site as a, as a city dump. It's where they threw their municipal refuse into this pit. In the 1940s, the U.S. Army began using the site as well uh, to dump waste from the war effort. And actually, some of the waste materials from the Manhattan Project were, were dumped in Love Canal. Also in the 40s, Hooker Chemical Company began searching for a place to dump large quantities of chemical waste that it was producing. They got permission, again from the city, to begin to dump the waste into the canal. So what they did is drain the canal, put a thick layer of clay under the bottom, and then began filling that with uh, chemicals, barrels of chemicals. Niagara, the city of Niagara Falls, as well as the Army, continued dumping there as well. And this dump site operated until 1953 when they put some dirt over it, capped it off, and grass started to grow. That same year, the school board in Niagara Falls was looking for property, a place to build some, yeah, I know, <laughs> looking for a place to build some property, and they said, we'd love that land. They approached Hooker Chemical. Hooker Chemical said, uh, you don't understand, there are chemicals buried there, not a great site for a school. And after a couple of years of wrangling over it, you know, Hooker gave a clear disclaimer. You shouldn't dig here, but if you want it, it's yours. They sold the land to the Niagara Falls School District for a buck, and lo and behold, they went ahead and built a school. In 1957, homes were added to the site. I'm going to just jump ahead to 1978. Here's what Eckert Beck, the EPA administrator, said upon visiting the site. I visited the canal area. Corroding waste disposal drums could be seen breaking through the ground of the backyards. Trees and gardens were turning black and dying. One entire swimming pool had popped up from its foundation afloat on a small sea of chemicals. Puddles of noxious substance were pointed out to me by the residents. Some of the puddles were in their yards and some were in their basements. Others yet were in the school playgrounds. Everywhere there, in the, there was, everywhere the air had a faint choking smell. And you'll love this part. Children returned from play with burns on their hands and, uh, on their hands and faces. Eventually, 800 families were relocated and reimbursed for their homes. And today, if you're driving north on the LaSalle Expressway and you look off to the east, you'll see a mound with pipes sticking out of it and growing grass 
And that's the Love Canal. Now, I wonder, just think about this for a moment, if you were able to get beyond the fence and into the canal area and you found a puddle on the canal property, uh, would you be anxious to bend over and take a sip, take a drink? Or how about this one? If you could get to the stream that goes through that area, would you go fishing, uh, catch a fish, and eat it? I have a feeling, after all I've said here, that, that you would not be likely to do that. You know, the Love Canal reminds me of an important verse in the book of Proverbs. Here's what Solomon wrote. Above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. The version that we use says, guard your heart above all else, for it determines the course of your life. Recently, they revised the New International Version, and they put a different twist on this uh, translation that I think is beautiful. They said, above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Everything, every action, every thought, every motive, everything you are flows from your heart. So think about it. If you want to drink the water, you'd better keep its source clean. And if you want a clean life, you better keep its source clean as well. You better keep your heart clean. Here's what we're going to learn today. Every time we let our hearts guard down, that's what the Bible, what the book of Proverbs says. Every time we let our hearts guard down, we risk the high price of a polluted life. And today we're going to be looking at the high price of an unguarded heart. What happens when we let the guard down? What happens when we live that kind of life? Solomon wrote these words as a man who is known as being very wise. He wrote it to his son. And at the same time, he's a man who violated his own advice. How often does that happen as a parent? Don't do this. Don't do what I'm doing. Right? That's what Solomon did. If you knew his background and his heritage, the kind of family he came from, and the circumstances of his birth, you'd be absolutely amazed that this man was blessed by God. He should never have been born. His parents should never have come together. And yet he ended up one of God's best and one of God's most blessed. And on the other hand, if you knew him only by reputation, if you knew only what was said about him, of his great wisdom, you would never have guessed at the incredibly stupid decisions he would make by the end of his life. Solomon's story tells us very clearly the high price of an unguarded heart. It begins, actually, with one of the most infamous accounts of adultery in human history, the one between David and Bathsheba. The Bible tells us that David decided to take a break from leading the army off to war. And so one night, he's on his roof, and he observes a woman bathing. Now, that alone, we kind of go, hmm, bathtub on the roof. I don't quite get it. Well, in the desert, the roof was a place where life happened in the evening. It was a cool place in the evening. And the way Jerusalem is, is located, it's located on a hill. So David would have lived at the top of the hill, and this city, which at that time was nothing more than a very small village, slopes down and the houses would stair step down from David's house. And so he literally looked down over the city. And as he looked down over the city, he sees a woman taking a bath on her roof. He invites her to his house and he has sex with her. And long story short, she becomes pregnant. Then he tries to cover up his sin and this blazing indiscretion. 
After having the affair, he covers it up with a murder, if you can believe it. The pregnancy resulted in the birth of a child that died. Bathsheba conceives once again after marrying David, and she gives birth to a son. And his name is Solomon. That's how Solomon comes to be. I mean, think about this, and I really want you to think about it. Because as adults, we don't tend to think about the impact our actions have on our children. In time, Solomon knew it all. In time, Solomon knew the circumstances of his birth. In time, he knew of the indiscretion between his father and his mother. In time, he knew of the blood on his own father's hands. I mean, imagine how that impacted him. Why in the world are we foolish enough to believe that our kids won't be impacted by our adult decisions? But they are. They are every time. And I'm telling you, it's too high a price. It's just too high a price. But I got to tell you some good news. God is in the business of taking polluted wells and turning them into life-giving springs. He's in the business of taking things that should be abandoned and turning them into something very hopeful. Solomon became the most wealthy, the most powerful, and the wisest person of his day. And in 1 Kings chapter 2, he becomes the king of Israel after his father's death. 1 Kings 2, 46 says, So Solomon was now finally, uh, the kingdom was now finally in Solomon's grip. After David's death and a brief power struggle, Solomon is the sole ruler of Israel. What's his first step? You know, we talk about a new president, his first hundred days. What, What are those initial actions? What's his first step as king? Well, we see it in chapter 3, verse 1. So Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, the kingdom of Egypt, and married one of his daughters. He brought her to live in the city of David until until he could finish building his palace and the temple of the Lord and the wall around the city. His first step is an alliance with Egypt and a marriage with Pharaoh's daughter. Now, if you know anything about the Bible, if you know anything about the Old Testament, little warning lights should be going off on your dashboard. There's a problem here right now. The Israelites were not to turn to Egypt for their security. They were to turn to God. And the first thing Solomon does is make an alliance with Egypt. And he takes it one step further. He follows the custom of those days. He marrows Pharaoh's daughter. Why? Because she was hot? I don't know, maybe. But that wasn't the reason. This was the way to seal an alliance. The thought was, if your daughter is now your wife, if my daughter is now your wife, You're not going to come attack my land. We have family because, after all, family gets along so well. In-laws never fight, so this should all work out great, right? No problem. Look at verse 2. At that time, the people of Israel sacrificed offerings at local places of worship. For a temple honoring the name of the Lord had not been built. On top of marrying an Egyptian wife and making an alliance with Egypt, the other thing he does is worship God. And you go, well, what's wrong with that? The location of where he worships God is the problem. Other translations refer to the fact that this, thing, this word you see translated here, at local places of worship, is typically referred to as the high places. 
the high places were the altars left over from the pagan worship that had taken place prior to Israel occupying the land. So they come in. These altars are still there. They were built in high places because the pagan people believed they were closer to their deities in the high places. And many times Israelites would just use those altars as places to worship Jehovah. These altars were used uh, for some things that were absolutely contemptible to Jehovah God. They were used for sexual rituals, and they were used for the sacrifice of humans, particularly children. If you can imagine this, the altar on which Solomon made an offering to God could very well have been used as a pile of stones where a young child was placed and killed in order to worship a false god. Needless to say, this did not bring our God great pleasure. In these two verses, we already see that Solomon suffered from something that is not only common in his age, but every age. Cultural blindness. Cultural blindness. When we look around at what the culture is doing and say, well, that's what's normal, so we'll go ahead and do it too. Instead of looking at what clearly is written in black and white in the Bible and say, this is what we're supposed to do, people just start going along with whatever the norms are in the culture. And the Bible clearly says that's a problem. The high, pri- the high places actually became something of a measuring stick for future kings of Israel. As you're reading through the Bible, it'll talk about a king being either righteous or wicked, and then it'll specifically refer to what he did with the high places. Did he tear them down, or did he use them instead as places of worship? Early on, we're already seeing the cracks in Solomon's character and a harbinger of his downfall. We can see that he's not fully devoted to God the way he should be, that he's not guarding his heart. Interestingly, it is at one of these high-placed sacrifices. He sacrifices a, a thousand animals to God, and after that, God appears to him. Look at verses 3 and 4 of chapter 3. It says, Solomon loved the Lord and followed all the decrees of his father, David, except, that's a warning word, except that Solomon, too, offered sacrifices and burn incense at the local places of worship, or the high places. The most important of these places of worship was in Gibeon. So the king went there and sacrificed a thousand burnt offerings. That night the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream, and and God said, What do you want? Ask, and I will give it to you. God says, Whatever you want, whatever you want, I'm willing to give it to you. He has this encounter God has this encounter with Solomon, grants him anything, and we know from the Bible that Solomon chose, of all things, he chose wisdom. He didn't choose the safety of his nation. He didn't choose personal riches, any of that. And God says, because you've chosen wisdom, I'll give you everything else. Later in the chapter, we see a classic example of Solomon's wisdom. You may remember the story. Two prostitutes are fighting over whether or not a child belongs to them. Clearly, it does not belong to one of the women. And they come to Solomon for a judgment, and Solomon says, here's what I'll do. I've got a sword here. I'll hack the baby in the half. Give each of you a half. And, of course, one of the women says, don't do that. I'd rather see him alive. And the other kid says, hey, half a kid's better than none. Sure, I'll take it. 
And in that moment, Solomon says, okay, we know who the real mom is. Let's, let's pass the baby on over uh, to the woman who wanted the child's life spared. 1 Kings 3.28 says, when all Israel heard the king's decision, the people were in awe of the king, for they saw the wisdom God had given him for rendering just justice. Solomon becomes rich, he becomes famous, and he becomes powerful because he's incredibly wise. He had quite a run. In fact, this is the high watermark uh, for God's people in terms of Israel's history. Under him, there are no major wars. It's peacetime. The size of the kingdom reaches its farthest borders ever. Its farthest physical borders ever. He undertakes many major building projects, including the temple, the palace, uh, the city walls, and many building projects throughout the land. Jerusalem becomes a world-class city for its time. The nation is about as rich as it will ever be. And it is truly Israel's golden era. And sadly, it lasts about as long as Solomon does. During that time, he writes some of the great books of Scripture, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. It could be said that Solomon is wisdom personified. He is wisdom personified. And from that wisdom, we see one of his great statements. Guard your heart above all else. It's the wellspring of life. Everything you do flows from it. If I were to put this into a modern translation, a really modern translation, guard your heart or you'll lose your mind. Guard your heart or you'll lose your mind. And I'm telling you what, I've watched it time and time again. I've sat across the table from people that I thought I knew. And I'm having a conversation with them and I'm going, what happened to you? They didn't guard their heart and in time you look at them and you say, I don't even know who you are anymore. They literally lose their mind. They become spiritually insane. Well, looking ahead a few chapters, we find that Solomon had learned the truth of this verse from experience, from bad experience, from dropping his guard. So you Flip ahead to 1 Kings chapter 11. And we start to see that he ignored his own good advice. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, he married women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sidon, and from among the Hittites. I mean, he's, just, he's a marrying machine. 1 Kings eleven two, The Lord had clearly instructed his people... You must not marry them. You must not marry foreign women because they will turn your hearts to their guards, to their gods. Look at the next line. It's huge. Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. Talk about letting your guard down. He insisted on loving them anyway. Verse 3, he had 700 wives of royal birth. Not just any old woman. 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And in fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. Now you look at this verse and you go, what? A thousand wives? A thousand wives and concubines? I mean, talk about going a little overboard. Could you have stopped at 495? A thousand? Are you kidding me? It gives us a window into what happens when we don't say no to our appetites and desires. We go crazy. We don't know where to stop. 
Remember, this is the guy who once said to his son, guard your heart. He totally let his guard down. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4. In Solomon's old age, these wives turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord as God, as his father David had been. Solomon worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidons, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. In this way, Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to follow the Lord completely as his father David had done. On the Mount of Olives, don't miss that, okay? On the Mount of Olives, remember the place Jesus prayed, remember it? On the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, he even built a pagan shrine to Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab. And another to Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites, where Jesus prayed. Years before, Solomon builds these altars to pagan gods. Solomon builds such shrines for all of his foreign wives to use for burning incense and sacrificing to their gods. The Bible goes on to say the Lord was very angry with Solomon for his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who appeared to him twice. He had warned Solomon specifically about worshiping other gods, but Solomon didn't listen to God's command. And so the Lord said to him, since you have not kept my covenant and disobeyed my decrees, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your servants. The rest of the chapter talks of the enemies that God raised up to begin to afflict Solomon. And at the end of the chapter, we're told Solomon died after a 40-year reign. And I have to say, after looking at these stories, looking at these chapters, looking at these words of Scripture, I just have to say this. I don't get it. I don't get it. How in the world does this guy end up here? How does this happen? How could the writer of Proverbs, I mean, we've gone through these times and we've said, read a chapter of Proverbs a day. Incredible wisdom. How could a guy that had that incredible wisdom go so crazy, so spiritually crazy in his life? How could he prove so dumb? How did this happen? Well, truthfully, it happened in Solomon's life the same way it happens in our lives. The speed may vary, but the result is always the same. Solomon let his guard down. He just started to let his guard down a little bit at a time. He let his guard down. And so we have to ask the question, what does letting our guard down look like? I mean, when we say this, what are we talking about? What do we mean when we say he let his guard down? Uh, The first thing that happens when we let our guard down, we align our lifestyle with our culture rather than God's truth. We find ourselves, instead of following what the Bible says clearly, we align ourselves with the culture instead of God's truth. Let me give you one specific example from our own times. It is common, quote-unquote, wisdom among people in our times that if you want your marriage to work, you should do a dry run. Move in, live together, spend some time together, get to know each other. That's the common wisdom of our time. You know the problem? The black and white words of the Bible say the opposite. But what do we do? We give in to the common wisdom of our time. And we say, I'm going to follow what the culture says rather than what the Bible says. And I don't know about you, but I've kind of looked around in American society and I've said, this place is a darn mess. It's messed up. 
uh, maybe the common wisdom isn't as good as we think. Maybe something's a little bit off base, but, but what do we do? We keep following the common wisdom. I'm just picking on one thing as an example. I could give all kinds of examples because truth be told, the media is doing a great job conveying the gospel of our culture, telling us what we should believe is normal rather than what the Bible says is normal. We need to follow what the Bible says, not what the culture says. But we find ourselves aligning ourselves with the culture rather than God's truth. Think in your own mind right now of the number of things that there was a time in your life that you said, no way, and now you're going, yeah, maybe... Because we're starting to align ourselves with culture rather than God. The second, we open our heart to little compromises. Along the way, we just start opening our hearts to little compromises. One of these happens in the area of media. You're watching different... I mean, is it possible to watch a movie these days that's clean? That we would, that we would actually be proud to say, wow, this follows Bible, biblical standards. They, they produce about three of these a year. And truth be told, two of the three are really boring. You know, so you kind of go, why in the world? I, you know, i got to watch some junk in order to watch something good. So there's a little skin. So there's a little this. So there's a little that. So all the morals being presented in the movie are completely the opposite of what I believe. I'll just tell my kid the whole time we're sitting there, we don't believe in that. We don't think that's good. That's a bad idea. Don't do that. We should never do that. You know, little things, little things. We open our hearts to little compromises, and we just keep doing it over and over and over again. Then what happens? We fall in love with what God forbids. And we go from opening the door to actually starting to love what God says no I mean, think about it. The Bible doesn't say that Solomon had many foreign wives. What did it say? He loved many foreign wives. He loved them. He embraced them. It's not just that he had a bunch of women in his house. He loved them. He embraced them. We find ourselves falling in love with what God forbids. And then what happens that's even sadder? We let our new love turn our heart away from God, just like Solomon. We let that new love start to turn our heart in a different direction. And before you know it, we're embracing something we never thought we'd embrace. And we're a little bored with God. Finally, we just drift. We drift. There's a sign not too far from Love Canal. I've seen it both from the road and from the water. It says, Danger! Niagara Falls restricted area, boating beyond this point is prohibited. It's prohibited because you're about a mile from the falls. You're about a half mile from some pretty swift water. You're about three quarters of a mile from some rapids you do not want to confront in your nice little rowboat. In the spring, they used to do this. I don't know if they do it anymore. They didn't want the falls to erode as quickly. So in the winter, they would put a boom across the mouth of, the Erie, uh, of Lake Erie to keep the ice back, and they keep the ice there until May to try to melt as much as possible. This kept our spring pretty cool. And then one day they'd let that ice boom go, and they would allow those smaller icebergs and those softened icebergs to go on down the river. So even though we hadn't seen ice for months, or for about a month actually, even though we hadn't seen ice for a while, these two days ice would be flowing like crazy down the river. And we kind of lived on the river. We loved the river. And those icebergs would come jump on those icebergs 
and float them a little bit. Now, I will admit to you, I was the biggest gutless weenie in North Tonawanda. I'd get on one right here, I'd go about this far, and I'd get off. I wasn't going to do that. But I had a friend named Junior, and Junior was nuts. And he'd go out as far as he could, and he'd ride for a while. And one day he was out actually riding icebergs alone, and he drifted. And he drifted pretty far. He drifted close enough that this sign could be seen. And he had to be rescued by the fire department. Have you ever drifted in a boat? Have you ever been at the dunes or at a beach and gone out in the water and just played? And before you know it, you look and you go, oh my word, land isn't as close as I used to think it was. That's what happens to us morally. I mean, we don't wake up one morning and go, man, I really want to sin. I'm just in the mood to sin bad. Let's go. Woo! We drift. We drift. We compromise here and there. We do these little things. And before you know it, one day we wake up and we can't even see land anymore. We've drifted so far away from God. And we're doing things and saying things that are unimaginable to the other people in our life because we've drifted so far away from God. We align ourselves with the culture rather than God's truth. We open our hearts to little compromises. We fall in love with what God forbids. We let that new love turn our heart away from God, and we just drift. And we drift and drift, and before you know it, our life is a mess. As we wrap up, I just want to cover some lies that we tend to tell ourselves. Lies that we repeat until we believe them. This is part of the drift. One of the lies, I'm smart and sophisticated. Isn't it amazing that sin these days is considered smart and sophisticated? That the world's philosophies are considered brilliant, but, you know, those Bible people, they're just dumb. And obeying God is just kind of, it's just kind of dumb. Uh, We're, the Bible says, fools if we believe we're smart and sophisticated when it comes to sin. The second one, I can handle it. I can handle it. It's no big deal. I can handle it. The Bible specifically talks about temptation. It's like putting hot coals in your lap and expecting to not get burned. I don't know about you. Somebody's got a hot coal. I'm like, don't put it in my lap. No, thank you. But we do that morally. We put the hot coals in our lap and we expect to not get burned. We can't handle it. I don't care how old you are. How about this one? You're going to think this is a little strange. Sin is no fun. This is one of the lies we tell ourselves. That sin is no fun. You're like, what? No, actually, this is true. We tell ourselves that sin is no fun. And then we try it and we go, man, that was fun. What's the deal? Pastor's been lying to me, man. This is a good time. Yeah, a good time that ends in your death. Your spiritual death. A good time that ends in destruction. You don't always know immediately the pain of sin. It's a trick. And in time you will be caught. And finally, I'll turn back in time. I don't know. Especially when you're younger. You're under 20 and you think, I'll do that spiritual thing someday, but right now I just want to have fun. I'm telling you this flatly. I I looked a person in the eyes this week, someone who's drifted so far, I don't even know him anymore. And this is a person that I'm going to just tell you flatly, there's no way in his life that he ever dreamed he'd be where he is today, nor any of us. And I believe he thought there was a time that he'd be able to turn back. And you know what I find about people that drift too far? Eventually they don't care if they turn back or not. Eventually they just don't give a rip. And everybody around them is crying and more concerned about their spiritual condition than they are because they don't care anymore. They will care one day. They will care eternally. You have no guarantee that if you start to drift, you'll ever come back to shore. You better start swimming, and swimming fast. 
Every time we let our hearts guard down, we risk the high price of a polluted life. Every time. Above all else, guard your heart. It's the wellspring of life. Everything you do flows from it. I've got to wonder how many times Solomon in his old age looked at those verses and asked, where did I go wrong? Where did I go wrong? What was the first step? It's simple. He didn't guard the source of his life. He polluted his heart. And in the process, he polluted his life. Learn from his wise words. Guard your heart. Guard your heart. I want you to take that card back in your hand because on the back side, there are some commitments that I'd like you to think about today. Uh, some things that we, you know, we just, we really need to take God's word seriously and what he says seriously. These four commitments. The first one simply says, um, I've let my guard down. I know it's not too late and I'm putting my guard back up. I've been foolish on this and I'm ready to put my guard back up. The second one, I realize that I've suffered from cultural blindness and I want to embrace God's truth instead. I've been buying the lie of the culture instead of what the Bible says. The third, I know I've been drifting and today I'm going to stop the drift. I'm stopping the drift. And finally, I've been telling myself at least one of those lies. At least one of them. Sin's no fun. I can handle it. I've been telling myself at least one of those. No more. It's time to live the truth. Would you take a moment right now to check one of those, all of those, wherever the Spirit is convicting your heart today and say, man, I'm committed. I'm committed to turning this thing around because the an unguarded heart comes at way too high a price. It is no deal, and I'm not falling for it anymore. Father, let your truth sink in. Solomon seems so distant, so removed, so remote, so he's ancient. We do all the same stuff for what Solomon does. Sure, we don't marry a thousand women. But, but we do all the same stuff we does. We, we fall for the same thing, God. And today I pray that you would catch us and bring us back. We don't want to be drifting anymore. We want to put our guard up. And we want to be that person that you can look at and say, like David, there's a man, there's a woman after my own heart. They want to obey me completely. pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Our ushers are going to come right now and they're going to be uh, receiving... Your offering, you can place your card in there as well. Would you go ahead and, and do that as, as the basket is passed? And there are just a, a couple of things that, that I want to remind you of as we, as we transition to the, our, our final time of uh, worship and, and contemplation, spending time in the presence of God, thinking about what we've learned. Uh, next Sunday, during both of the services... We're going to be offering a a baptism seminar. This is an opportunity, really, uh, in a sense, to put your guard up. It's an opportunity to say, I am aligned with Jesus, and I'm not doing the stuff the world wants me to do. I'm doing what Jesus wants me to do. So if you've been thinking about getting baptized this summer at either of our outdoor services, we want to encourage you to go ahead and sign up for that seminar. It was on your card. You can check off. Uh, the seminar. You can email us about it as well. We'd also like to know which one you plan on attending. If you plan on attending the first service or the second service. Some of you said you're not going to be able to be here. Uh, we'll make sure to make up that opportunity for you. Uh, and, and the other thing um, some of you have been asking about is um, gone from my head. But I'll tell you what, for a sick guy, my head's doing all right. So I, wanted, I do want to, before I go, thank all of you who have been praying for 
for me physically, other stuff, but physically in particular, I, I honestly, I went to the doctor on Monday and he said, Bud, this is going to take four to six weeks. Just get used to it. It's going to take a while. And uh, had a number of you throughout the week emailing, you know, I'm praying, I'm praying. And I knew you were praying. It wasn't just one of those I'm praying, meaning I hope you have a nice day. And um, sometime late in the week, something broke. I woke up and I'm telling you what, it's like it's gone. It is gone. It's gone. And I just I want to thank you so much because that didn't happen because of an antibiotic. The antibiotic would mean four weeks from now I'd still be feeling pretty cruddy. You did that. You did that talking to God on my behalf, and I thank you for it. In the words of Philippians 2, Though Jesus was God, he did not think of equality with God something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took on the humble position of a slave, was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself to obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name that is above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God elevated Himself. God elevated Him to the place of highest honor. The God who gave His life for us is the God who reigns over all. Let's worship Jesus together. Thank you for the mad love that you've showed us, Father God. Help us to give it right back to you. In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us today, Southfield. You're dismissed. Happy Mother's Day.